the only constant in software is change. Welcome to the MongoDB podcast. I'm Nick Raboy, and I'm with my co-host, Mike Lin, and we're going to be talking to Ken White, security principal at MongoDB, about MongoDB security. So we're going to be talking about things such as field-level encryption, encryption of your data at rest, some best practices that you can use to make sure that you're in compliance with certain regulations. We're going to have a pretty much great time when it comes to overall security practices that you can take. All right, so we're here with Ken White. Ken, it's really great to have you on the show. I'm really excited to um, to chat with you about all things security at MongoDB. Can um, can you start off by introducing yourself to the audience? Sure, thanks, Mike. Uh, so I'm Ken White. I'm a security principal at MongoDB. Uh, my focus is generally around uh, encryption and security for uh, our cloud platform and and most of our global product groups. So uh, lots of lots of interest in different areas of, of security across the board. Oh, that's great. And um, how long have you been at MongoDB? Uh, so I'm out of the two and a half year mark. Uh, so yeah, been a little bit of an old man, I guess, in, in Mongo staff terms. <laughs> yeah, you've seen some good stuff, though, over that time period. It's been uh, quite a ride. I've been here four and a half years, I suppose, somewhere around there. And um, just in terms of security, I, it's amazing to me how far we've come. Um, so you've seen the advent of MongoDB Atlas, right? What, where did you come in in terms of, you know, when we launched Atlas? Right. Yeah. So when I came in, Atlas had only been, the, or the, the database as a service offering had only been really, I think, available for about a year. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty remarkable. It's, it's gone from kind of a niche offering to, you know, now it's something like 40, 45% of the, the revenue of the company. So. Uh, lots of lots of interest in in people sort of focusing on the development work and and kind of offloading the you know the heavy lifting of uh, infrastructure for uh you know for the folks who built the engine so yeah big big change for sure so I want to dig a little deeper into the scope of of what you manage um, as a security principal at MongoDB so you mentioned the cloud platform and some of the products. Uh, I, I just want to get into the specifics so that way the listeners can get the context of, of your scope. So, for example, do you have oversight into, say, the on-premise versions of MongoDB or the drivers or maybe just shed some light into that? Sure. Yeah. I, and I have to sort of preface this by saying I've got kind of an unusual role. I'm not a product manager. So, uh, you know, I, I'm not, you know, I don't work on the, you know, the marketing and promotion side. Um, but, but I report into the engineering group. So, um, I've helped to kind of shepherd a few products along a few, few pieces, a few features of the, uh, you know, of the, um, of the products, but it's not, uh, it, it's much more sort of mm, purely security focused. So, you know, any given day I could be working with, uh, you know, our senior engineers, you know, scoping things out, uh, for some new feature coming down, I could be working with, uh, you know, strategic customers, on you know some really interesting or, or unusual problems, trying to create some solutions. Um, could be uh, talking to people in the, the media, or uh, you know working with journalists who had questions and things, or could be working directly with developers. Uh, some days I'm developing code and doing like uh, you know uh, demonstrations and things like that. So so I kind of wear a lot of different hats, but uh, yeah, kind of kind of have have visibility across quite a few areas on the 
the one project I've been working on for a, a couple of years, and I'm sure we'll, we'll get more into this later, is the uh, is the client side fill level encryption. So uh, for that one, I was uh, kind of the, the product architect, and you know, happy to talk more about that. You know, kind of as we get forward here. Oh, we'll definitely get into that. That's a huge topic. I love I love the the whole project around field level encryption. But before we go there. Um, how did you get into security? And and you mentioned that you still write code. Give me an idea, like what what's your background around code, and and what drew, drew you to the security side of things? I have such a weird pedigree. So so yeah. So my uh, my my formal training's in uh, computational modeling and neuroscience, and so I actually did a lot of work in the healthcare space and uh, in in the clinical world. And so when I was in grad school, I was doing a lot of work at the NIH Clinical Center. Uh, outside DC and in, in Bethesda, Maryland, and uh, it's it's just such an incredible place for uh, kind of you know young engineers and scientists and, and researchers to kind of come along. But anyway, the, the the short version of the abbreviated version of that is uh, we were doing a lot of work around uh, MRIs and uh, not just the not just the structural stuff, so the you know the pictures of the the bones and and tissues and things, but also something called functional MRI which actually looks at metabolism. So you can, for example, have people working on different, uh, you know, reading or doing different kinds of cognitive tasks, and you could actually see different areas of the, the brain flow and, and activity levels, like in real time. Uh, and so at some point, I kind of realized I like the, I like the computer and, and the, you know, the sort of the software side of that um, almost as much as the science. And eventually I kind of went sort of full-time into that. But but yeah, so I have kind of a weird background. So it's partly like uh, signal processing, image analysis, uh, real-time processing. So, um, you know, I was doing stuff that had to had to have sensitivity within like, you know, microsecond kind of, uh, you know, response speed. So lots of embedded systems and, and that kind of stuff. Um, and then somehow I kind of ended up in the, in the clinical research world with uh, drug development. So everything from like, uh, you know, psychiatric meds to uh, uh, cancer medications, new treatments, uh, and any kind of, uh, you know, drug therapies, and did like 15 years building, you know, mission workloads around uh, clinical trials. And at some point, you know, we built up something like 2,000 uh, centers around the world that I'd kind of ended up sort of architecting the, the, the core, you know, system software, but then also kind of owning the security pieces of it. Um, I, I've had some other roles too. I've done, you know, I've been a CIO and uh, CISO, uh, did some work with the, the military, um, did some work with Homeland Security. So yeah, lo lots of different kind of things that kind of sort of brought me here. Uh, in the last several years, I've been really focused around encryption. So um, I don't know if folks are familiar with the, the Linux Foundation, but it's a, um, you know, it's a major nonprofit that sort of a lot of the open source world um, you know, coalesces around, uh, you know, in terms of funding and things. So the Linux Foundation created this thing called the Core Infrastructure Initiative uh, around the time that Heartbleed broke out. And uh, we worked with them to do, uh, you know, a full formal uh, cryptanalysis on OpenSSL. And, um, and so that was an interesting project. And um, uh, yeah, so, so I've, I've kind of taken quite a few paths, but uh, mission workloads, distributed systems, uh, you know, real-time network defense, that's kind of the, the, the very abbreviated version of a, of a story, of a, you know, strange career that brought me up to this point. 
So it sounds like uh, you're the guy to talk to when it comes to encryption, and I definitely want to dig in deeper to that soon. But before we even go there, I want to ask what kind of goes into the process of securing a platform like MongoDB? What are the different aspects of security? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So, it, you know, it, a lot of these things are just kind of fundamentals. They're sort of like, you know, foundation concepts. So the, the first thing is you have to kind of really think about what kind of information you're holding, what kind of information you want to protect, where that's going to live, and then, you know, do some really basic threat modeling, like, you know, who, who or what might be, um, you know, potential risks to to this data getting leaked out. If, if, you know, if they're not holding, you know, secure information, then maybe I don't really care if this is something on a, you know, I've got a personal blog that's got, you know, cat pictures. I'm not <laughs> super concerned if I've got things with uh, healthcare data or PII, then, you know, then I have to treat that very differently. Um, but, but yeah, so I, I think like, like any database, you sort of start with the fundamentals, what, where the sensitive data, what, what kind of information you're holding, who should have access to it. Is it mainly going to be people? Is it going to be uh, systems? Is it going to be a you know a web app, a mobile app? Is it going to be uh, you know some kind of big system integration with like a you know enterprise system? So you kind of start with those questions. But then yeah, all the fundamentals that, that you know we're, we're taught in security, the the CIA triad, the you know confidentiality, integrity, uh, and availability. Those are kind of the, the key pillars. So you got to set authentication. You got to figure out. Uh, who's authorized to to get access to the data? And sometimes it's really simple. You've got a like a simple web application that talks to the database, and that's that's the only user. In other cases, you've got you know thousands and thousands of different people users that are going to be connecting. Maybe as analysts, maybe as uh, you know some sort of reporting things. Uh, so you have to figure out what are the paths to get there. Um, then other questions are like you know is this going to be an internal system? Is this an inside a you know, a corporate or an organizational network? Is this something that's going to be living on the internet, public facing? Because if that's the case, then, you know, you've got a whole different kind of, uh, you know, approach and, and set of responsibilities you've got to kind of take, take care of. Um, we, we lay a lot of these out in, uh, in our security white paper, which is really helpful. It's, it's got a lot of very, you know, like practical kind of prescriptive steps that people can make. Um, but one of the things we focused on uh, a lot in the last several years is making sure that, you know, if you download MongoDB, whether you're on Red Hat or Debian or, you know, Windows Box or whatever, or on your Mac, um, the, the default installation should be reasonably secure. So by default, we're, you know, you're not listening to the, the public, uh, you know, network traffic. Um, and so, you know, uh, you know, in kind of playground or sandbox mode, that, that works really well. Uh, we've got all kinds of uh, things you could turn on to, you know, around uh, encryption and auditing and, and monitoring and things like that. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's really kind of a, you know, a, a, a structured discipline kind of, you know, step through what, you know, the kind of information you're protecting, where it's going to live and who could potentially have access to it. If you've got sensitive information on an internet facing sort of 24 seven open to the world uh, system, then you have to be, you know, you have to be really careful and thoughtful about how you're going to be uh, protecting that um, and, and how you, you know, who you want to have access to it and so forth. Um, you know, we see these stories from uh, time to time, whether it's, uh, you know, Mongo or, or uh, you know, a, a caching system or, uh, you know, a cloud bucket or something like that, where, uh, 
you know, people have information and it gets, it gets picked up either by a search engine or, you know, maybe by an attacker. And then, uh, you know, there, there's all kinds of problems that come with that. So it, really the responsibility is on the person who's owning the, the, the data, like, you know, what kind of information does it have? How are you securing it? How are you, uh, you know, how are you protecting it? And, and then importantly, if, if there is some kind of, uh, you know, unauthorized access, how do you know? How are, you know, uh, you know, what, what kind of monitoring do you have in place, this sort of thing. So there's, there's several different levels, but, but a lot of these are kind of, you know, foundation. If you have sensitive records, you've got to protect them, um, period. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. I think, so what's fascinated me is over time, the, this, the kind of switch in the vectors between uh, MongoDB as a platform, as a database, and MongoDB as MongoDB Atlas as an online database as a service. So early on, the challenge was this this uh, dichotomy between making the database easy to use, so that anybody could just install it on their laptop or desktop, and and off you go, and it's just easy to use, and you can learn. Um, but over time, obviously, um, you know, rolling those those play apps into production apps, and and making sure that you check all the boxes to make things secure on the way, that is a very a dramatically different story in terms of security than you know using a database as a service online and the 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 profile of vectors um, have dramatically changed can you talk a little bit about like the, the the challenge between those two you know servicing those two worlds where we want the database to be as easy to use as possible but at the same time we need it to be secure and and you know controlling those out of the box levels of security and, and how that's changed over time Sure. Um, yeah, no, that's, that's great. So in the, in the software world, there's this phrase called uh, uh, code smell. And, and what it means is you may not have a deep understanding of a particular language, but as an observer, so you, you take a quick look at code. There are a couple of kind of telltale signs that there's something probably deeper going on. It's kind of like if you were buying a car and you were looking at the options and, um, you know, electric windows weren't included okay, maybe you don't really care about electric windows, but the fact that they're not even included, you're, you know, if it's crank only windows, it, it, you know, you may be looking at a 30 year old used car, you know what I mean? Like, so there, there's sort of symptoms like that. In the security world, there's something similar. There's sort of a security smell. And so a lot of times what we find with, um, you know, with developers is they do get up and going quickly, but maybe they're just on a single, uh, you know, a, a single node with, with no availability, no, no failover, um, you, you, you know, no, no robustness. Uh, and then, you know, you can sort of picture people kind of flipping different knobs to just sort of see what works. Um, in the same way, if you install a web server and you get stuck at some point in the, you know, in the install process and you say, all right, forget it. I'm just going to install this as root and I'm going to set all the permissions on my Linux box to 777. Well, I guess that works in the sense that um, you know you can you can start your you know patch your nginx or whatever. Uh, the problem is if there's even the slightest uh, vulnerability or flaw, then then the attacker has instant access to um, you know <laughs> the entire system. So nobody does that. Oh, no, nobody nobody chmod seven seven sevens anymore, right? <laughs> right, but and, and so and that's totally fine on your laptop, you know, or if you're just you know if you're just sort of evaluating something to kind of quick and dirty, that's perfectly fine. The problem is. That transition from that state to I'm playing around with some dummy data to the next step, which is, oh, by the way, here are insurance records for real people. 
that are exposed and you know it, like the security is just one of your problems the other the other problems are uh you know if if anything at all happens to this cloud image you're you're just you know you're out of luck and you've lost your data so you know there's like a whole constellation of things but yeah so so for the same reason i think that a lot of customers came to us you know when we were looking at building atlas and said look it's not that we don't understand MongoDB. We've got, you know, two or three or four engineers who are really smart and they understand most of the, the stuff. But the thing is, we don't want to be we don't want to be in the business of managing shards and replica sets and doing patching. And like they we'd much rather have, uh, you know, the focus be on developing our apps and, you know, and sort of innovating the, the stuff that we're really good at. Like, wouldn't you all be the best at telling us how the performance works and making it work and and by the same token the security so on atlas for example out of the box there's there's no internet access you it's automatically tls you can't turn that off um you know there's you've got to set uh, user roles and accounts um, and then you automatically have high availability even on the you know the, the least expensive kind of accounts and so that that's great it makes a lot of things go away um what, what's trickier though is to go from you know there's that there's that old cartoon about how to draw an owl where there's like, you know, first there's an oval and then there's like a second oval and then the next picture is like a fully flushed out owl with like the finely done feathers and the eyes and everything. Like it's that step in between that's really hard. It's operationalizing it with with real data. And so, um, you know, if a, a lot of developers tell us it just makes more sense to to have that as a managed service. But you know, if if you need to uh, you know, go down that route of having, you know, of, of, of doing it yourself. There's just a lot of pieces to, to, you know, put in place. No, it's a, it's a, a good, good uh, answer to the question, I guess. But so, I mean, it comes down to this. People want to feel comfortable that the, uh, okay, look, all cards on the table, we're going to, we're going to say, um, so what I wanted to to ask you, Ken, was, MongoDB has some historical challenges with that dichotomy between making the database easy to use and and making it secure. And some may say that the decision was made at some point to make it more easy to use than secure. And um, what I what I want to ask you is, can people feel comfortable today using MongoDB in the cloud? You mentioned that MongoDB Atlas is is secured through a number of of ways, but talk a little bit more about how you you've solved that that question and and how you can answer that to oh oh sure 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 so that so the, I, so yeah i mean this points to sort of a, a major misconception which is uh i i mean i think if you you know if you kind of distill it down or you know if to be like completely reductive um you know you will hear from time to time well mongodb is not secure so to that what i'd say is take take an rpm or debian package or or what have you uh, you know, from from the distros, download it, put it on a public-facing, uh, you know, internet, uh, you know, cloud server. If you can compromise that, we'll give you $10,000. We haven't had remote exploits in something like five or six years. If you change the defaults to allow internet access, but you don't do the next step, which is to run these two or three lines, which, uh, you know, a script to, you know, to set an application password, then yeah, that's a problem, but there's a problem for any system, for any, you know, for any database. With Atlas, we just don't even give you the option. You have to set uh, auth. Um, and so the the trade-off we made on the, 
you, you know, on the, on the self-install, you know, on the, on the standalone version is uh, the, the out-of-the-box configuration is, is uh, you know, reasonably secure. Uh, if you change that, then you, you can't go halfway. You have to, you know, you, if you do a custom install, you can't sort of expose yourself to the internet because it makes your web server be able to talk to the DB, but then leave that wide open. Um, and we see that quite a bit. There, there, there are very few um, architectures where you should ever have unrestricted internet access to a database. In general, that's really, really a bad practice and a code smell and a security smell. Um, it, it, you know, sometimes we'll have a developer say, well, I'm, it's a mobile application, so I need to have, uh, you know, I, I don't know where people are connecting from. Well, no, then you have a proxy endpoint, then you have an API service endpoint, but it's a web service endpoint. You shouldn't have your database like exposed directly to the internet for the same reason you shouldn't have your SQL Server or Postgres or Oracle or anything else or a cloud bucket exposed directly to anyone uh, if it's got sensitive data. So, um, you know, th th we've done a lot of kind of work behind the scenes um, that, that I don't think has ever been recognized. So, I mean, I can spend a minute or two kind of talking about that if that's, you know, if, if you think that might be uh, interesting. Because um, I, I, I do think there's sort of a deeper security story that people may not be aware of. I have a question maybe related to this. And if it means digging in deeper, then I, I would love it. Um, so you mentioned the whole uh, 777 permissions. Uh, and even though that you shouldn't do them, you could do them. Uh, if we if we look at that and take it to say MongoDB Atlas with the whole um, safe listing of IP addresses or even uh, giving user accounts access to certain things, I mean, are we are we doing anything right now to kind of deter people from doing that? Because I think I think if the user really wanted to, like you said, they could open it up to the entire internet or they could create admin root privileges on all of their uh, MongoDB accounts, right? That's right. Yeah. So, so this is always the, the, the interesting trade-off with a, with a, you know, with a server, a cloud service or really any kind of service, you, you want to give people flexibility, but you also kind of want to, uh, want to try to, to provide as much safety net as you can to not, not shoot yourself in the foot. So yes, if you go into Atlas, spin up a cluster, uh, you know, name it, uh, put some data on it and, and, uh, and then open up the, um, you know, the network ports, we will have a giant red flashing, you know, warning sign, and you'll get periodic emails that says, "Hey, by the way, this is a really bad practice." Um, but what we don't allow you to do is just to not have auth authentication. So you, you you've got to set some kind of auth. So either a you know a, a random token that you create, or uh, you know a, a reasonable password, or you know at, at the absolute bare minimum, um, if, if somebody's bound and determined to make um, you know to to put risky things in place to, to make things you know faster, th there's going to be ways to do that. Um, we, we try to make that uh, as hard as possible. And so, uh, you know, I'm sure people are aware of the, you, you know, these, um, uh, you know, like criminals and things that will that were scanning GitHub and, and they were looking for um, you know cloud tokens, uh, you know, API tokens. Uh, because what would happen is people would get their AWS bill or Google bill or whatever. And it'd be like $20,000. And so what happened was they'd unintentionally committed, you know, their API keys uh, for like root access to their, their cloud accounts uh, somewhere in like a hidden directory or an environment file or something, committed that to GitHub, to a public repo, to, you know, Gitbucket or whatever. Uh, someone come along and taken that and then spun up a bunch of Bitcoin miners and so forth. So 
um, you know, they, they were kind of like a lot of high profile stories, of, you know, handful in the beginning. And eventually uh, the cloud providers kind of got together and they said, look, we're just going to work directly with GitHub. We're going to work directly with Gitbucket and, um, you know, <laughs> and, and programmatically scan these things. And so by the same token, now, if that happens, you'll get a really nasty letter from Amazon or Google saying, hey, you, you did this, probably wasn't intentional, but by the way, we're going to cut you off if you don't, uh, you know, address this. We get it ourselves from time to time because, you know, we're a large organization and developers, uh, you know, do all kinds of, uh, you, you know, throw away sandbox keys or uh, things like that, 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 that they're not really tied to anything at all. Uh, sometimes they've been invalidated for a long time, but if they look like an access token, you know, they'll pick it up. Uh, but some of the things that we have been doing too, uh, we can't stop people from, uh, you know, putting a blog on the internet that gives really dangerous instructions on how to how to stand up a server. But we've literally gone to random bloggers on the internet or to Stack Overflow or some of these other forums where, uh, you know, people can go because it's sort of high, you know, it'll be kind of uh, high up in the search results for, for installing the system and reached out to, you know, individuals and, and people on forums and saying, hey, you know, uh, this is a great post, but uh, you know, this section right here, uh, you, you may want to point people to the white paper. You may want to add these extra three lines because this is really high risk. Uh, and we've had, you know, we've had great response with that. And also, you know, we'll get calls from time to time from journalists, reporters or whatever that are like, you know, here's, you know, here's some massive breach in India or Mexico or here's passport photos or something. And it's on MongoDB. And it's like, well, they're not our customers. Um, and it's a, just a random box on the internet. We're super limited on what we can do. We're certainly not going to start probing into someone else's infrastructure that we have nothing to do with. What we can do, though, is if uh, if we're made aware of it, if you can give us an IP address, we can do some open source research and find out at least if this is a public cloud provider. And if it is, you know, we've developed relationships deep in the security teams at Amazon and Google and Azure, and we can escalate that to people to say, Look, this has nothing to do with us. We're just trying to be good net citizens. But somebody somewhere out there is running really sensitive data insecurely on your infrastructure. And I know that at least in the case of Amazon, they will reach out on every possible contact you've ever given them for billing or whatever and start, you know, contacting people. And eventually, if there's no answer, they'll just cut it off. They'll just, you know, cut off network access. And so, uh, you know, th that, that tends to get people's attention, but we, we, you know, we work with security researchers all the time who, who will find some breach or something and sometimes reach out to us. And again, it's like, look, it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, general purpose database. People are going to do, uh, you know, strange things with it. It's the, the story's not that it was a MongoDB. The story is that somebody held really confidential information and configured it in a, in a bad way. And it got picked up by a search engine or a security researcher. And so, um, you, you know, we've, We've tried to, um, you, you know, make as much effort as we could, but it's it's a little limited in, you know, in terms of what we can do. Um, but but you know, we've certainly made lots of progress. There's a whole story too about just in terms of how we build security into the products. That I'm happy to get into if, if folks are interested because I think it's uh, it's actually some of the most sophisticated build engineering that, that I've ever worked with in my life. But uh, you know, I, I think it's another one of those areas where we're kind of a, a bit misunderstood. Mm, yeah. So what about the, the, the folks that say, you know, we, we can scan the internet, we can scan and find these open, these, these insecure installations of MongoDB. Why don't 
you do that as a, as MongoDB? Do you feel any responsibility for that? Why why wouldn't why wouldn't you do that? We don't scan the internet for database connections. It's one thing if someone has a, you know a, a web server that's offering content. It's another thing to go in with a direct wire protocol into a database and then start sniffing around and running random queries. They're very two very different things. I mean, one is like you know it's something's been indexed by by Google and maybe it shouldn't be. The other is going out of your way to start you know probing or trying to understand what's in someone else's system. That we just can't do. We're just you know we're just limited. We certainly have relationships with you know. Um, uh, census and, and, uh, you know, Shodan and, and some of those folks. And, and actually they, you know, the, the people who run those sites have written a couple of posts that said, look, this isn't, you know, this isn't specific to Mongo or Microsoft or Amazon or Oracle or, or, you know, there's, there are, there's a bigger story here. Um, but so, you know, if we're made aware of it, then, uh, you know, we'll help as best we can, but no, we're not going to, we're not going to scan, you know, infrastructure that's not ours, you know, from, from databases. You mentioned uh, probing people's applications. So I, w- I want to ask a question around this. So uh, commonly, um, at least with the relational database, uh, people are sometimes opening themselves up to uh, SQL injection attacks, right? They're, re- they're not uh, escaping characters or they're not sanitizing uh, the requests that come in and uh, that, that results in their database, uh, <laughs> be given access to somebody, right? Um, does MongoDB suffer from any kind of attacks like that? Like if you wanted to probe somebody, uh, would you be able to, I guess is where I'm going. Yeah, that's a good question. It's It turns out it's, it's a little tricky. SQL injection in general is, is just one specific instance of um, unsanitizing arbitrary input data that's attacker supplied. So, um, you know, on a, on a web form or something, um, there's actually, I, I've got a few, a few of these, uh, bookmarked in my files and things where people with, um, you know, hyphenate or, a, a apostrophe last names like O'Leary would literally type their name and they'd get a, they get like a PHP error or a Python error or something. Um, <laughs> and it, and it was clearly part of some kind of SQL thing. Uh, so, so the, the broader problem is if you allow, uh, you know, public input, unfiltered attacker supplied or adversary supplied input uh, to, to be queried against your database, um, you, you know, that's a serious problem. In general, we haven't seen uh, many of those kinds of attacks in general in the wild with, with MongoDB, partly because we use, um, uh, you know, partly because we use uh, drivers that have uh, parameterized frameworks. So uh, rather than sort of arbitrary strings that come in, they, they, they tend to be parameterized, um, which is kind of the practice that people in the, uh, you know, in the PHP and Java world do. But if you've got an application that you've custom built that you're not using sort of a standard framework and you're, you're constructing strings from, uh, you know, from web input boxes and then allowing that to hit the database directly as a privileged user, you can probably create some, uh, you, you know, some shenanigans, uh, but in general, because of the types of languages that people use and the frameworks that they're they're typically using, um, we just don't see that a whole lot. Mm. So there's there's protection from that type of attack, uh, where people are trying to inject uh, commands into a database from unfiltered input, um, and then there's attacks 
where they try to get access to the data that's stored on disk. And uh, we've got a couple of ways that, uh, that MongoDB protects against that. One of them you mentioned earlier, field level encryption. For the, for the folks on the, on the podcast that are listening in that, that may not be aware of it, can you give us a, a definition of what field level encryption is and how it works? Oh, you bet. So I, I guess the way I'd say it is I, I think in general, and even among like security people and, and fairly sophisticated tech people, I think there's like a broad misunderstanding or misconceptions of what database encryption is because nearly every cloud service has uh, some kind of quote encrypted database. But usually what they're protecting is something that's either only done for compliance reasons, kind of checkbox, that's not really operational security, or it's addressing a very specific kind of threat, which you probably don't have. So if, um, so, so let me let me kind of start from the beginning, like, you know, kind of the different types of database encryption, and we'll get to FLE. In general, uh, you know, most of the big public cloud providers, when you spin up a, a virtual machine, you can basically check a box and say, you know, I want, um, you know, I want an encrypted uh, storage. And what that does is it encrypts the operating system. It encrypts the, the underlying, uh, you know, volume or the disk. And that's helpful for a couple things. If you believe that it's a small little provider and that at some point that physical hardware is going to get decommissioned, and then go on some shelf somewhere in a storage room, and then who knows, maybe end up on eBay or Craigslist, and you don't want people to buy those hard drives or, or SSDs and then you know see your data. Yeah, that protects against it. But this is it's a very different kind of thing than like a developer's laptop where you worry about uh, you know you losing it in a taxi or having it stolen or having your phone stolen, because in those scenarios, you know, a disk encryption is really helpful. But I'm not personally too worried about a rogue Amazon or Google employee selling a $3 hard drive on eBay. So, so why do people have that? Well, the other piece is, is fairly legitimate, which is these, these are, you know, there are millions of these things spun up and down every day. Um, you have no idea who was before you or who's coming after you as a customer of these cloud services. So if you write sensitive data to a disk, you want to make sure that when you release that back into their, their, their fleet, that some other customer will see that the next customer can't read your data. And maybe that seems like an obvious thing, but it's absolutely not. And I can tell you at least three out of the biggest five cloud providers at some point earlier in their lifetime, you know, didn't get that one right. Um, I actually myself discovered it by accident when I was doing some work on disk encryption. I was scanning the like the low level volume, the, the SDA, the dev SDA in, in Linux speak. And started seeing uh, like love letters. This was a couple of years back, and like uh, you know, dating profiles and and what were clearly uh, you know passwords and things. So that it, it it does happen, but that's very different than I want something to protect from hackers, right? Because that that's a very different kind of scenario. So uh, you know, we have to kind of define who those attackers are. Is it is it an insider? Is it a you know a rogue admin or, or DBA? And so we had a lot of customers at, at Mongo that came to us, you know, some of these were, you know, big gaming companies that had, you know, huge infrastructure or um, in the healthcare world or, um, you know, in the pharmacy world and retail banking and, and investment banking came to us and said, you know, we've got applications that are running on Mongo and your cloud service and it's great. It's, you know, it, it, it's super suitable for analytic workloads, that kind of thing. But now we want to put 
treasury functions. Now we want to put, you know, currency exchanges. Now we want to put, you know, credit card uh, information or other things like this that, you know, the highest sensitivity kind of data. What can you do to kind of help us to protect that? Because it's not that we don't trust you, like personally. It's that our risk profile as an organization, we can't afford the the exposure of any kind of third party managing this sort of data. And so that, that's how we eventually came to, to build the field level encryption. So the key pieces with that, it's uh, the, the, the full complement is called uh, client side field level encryption. And so what that means is that uh, rather than do some gymnastics with uh, decryption encryption and where you hand your keys to the cloud service and then we sort of take care of all that, this is different. This is, um, it's sort of like in the, you know, with the with the secure messaging apps like uh, Signal or WhatsApp, the idea is that it's end-to-end encryption so that if anyone's intercepting or surveilling or, or you know, if there's any kind of leak on the network or if the, uh, the party who's holding the, you know, the data is sort of in the, in the interim, like, a, you know, in a temporary state before the next person reads it, um, it, it protects against that. So it's end-to-end meaning... I'm sending a message and the only person who should be able to read that is the person who I'm sending it to and no other person. It's, it's very similar to that, uh, except the difference is instead of two people on a phone, it's my application writes it and my application reads it and no one else does. No DBA, no sysadmin, nothing. And your cloud service, like it doesn't, I don't want pinky promise as a service. Like I don't want just a pinky swear. I want technical assurance that this can't be done. And so what field level encryption does, the way we've implemented is it encrypts it at the application before it ever leaves your network boundary. And so by the time it gets to Atlas, it's already encrypted. So if we were to have some sort of breach, if Amazon or Google or Azure were to have some sort of breach, however unlikely that is, uh, or if there was some mistake and somebody were able to, to, you know, to, to get credentials into your database, they would see nothing. They'd see gibberish. They'd see they'd see meaningless binary data that's that's not recoverable. So that's kind of cool. The, the second piece was we had customers coming to us saying we have contractual obligations, or maybe we have compliance reasons, like uh, in GDPR or the, the the new California rules that say because of consumer privacy rules, we need some technical assurance that, like um, you know, on demand, we can ensure that all records tied to a particular user are deleted. Well, that turns out to be really tricky, right, in, in most applications, because most applications aren't just, you know, a couple of tables or a couple of collections. They tend to, you know, once data get in, they kind of tend to sort of ferret their way into all kinds of different uh, places in a system. But what field level encryption allows us to do is to say, fine, we'll just destroy the key that's tied to these particular documents. And those documents are now irrecoverable. doesn't matter if you have backups. It doesn't matter what, if once that key's encryption key has been destroyed, that data are irrecoverable, those data are irrecoverable. So field level encryption lets you encrypt an entire collection. You can encrypt multiple fields. You can even use a key to the, on an individual document basis. Uh, and those are all customer managed. So those are, those are keys that you can spin up on, on Amazon or, or Google or Azure. Um, and you see and you hold, we never see them. They're never delegated to us, uh, nothing of that sort. So uh, again, by the time they get to the, the Atlas service, the, the database that we're managing, it's already encrypted. So I have a question um, regarding this as well. So uh, 
you mentioned destroying the key would destroy the records uh, that exist in MongoDB. Are you suggesting that when people use field level encryption, they encrypt all fields within that document or uh, just certain fields? No, that's a great question. So, so the, like a lot of things in security, there's trade-offs. Um, you lose some functionality when you use um, client-side encryption. Uh, so, for example, you can you can't ask the database anymore. <coughs> Pardon me. You can't say, "Give me um, give me every uh, user at this specific time within, say, five kilometers of this geolocation." You can't do that because A, it doesn't know the geolocation. It only sees gibberish. And B, it doesn't know the other, you know, the other geolocation. So, so anything that the, that the central server would have to do, um, you, you know, to have knowledge of, of the underlying clear text data, there's some limitations on that. Um, what we spend a lot of time doing is to try to make it so that you don't have to worry about a lot of that. You should be, just be able to say, um, maybe I only need to encrypt social security number or a mobile number or a credit card number or certain types of health records. Uh, because it turns out, if you think about it, if if you had a big, uh, like a financial database uh, of customer accounts, the dollar value, right, the, the, the account balance itself, that's not sensitive. It's only sensitive when it's tied to a particular person. Otherwise, it's just sort of an arbitrary number. And so it, for performance reasons, you may want to have you know, really high performant queries that are run against um, you know, plain text fields. So you can sort of do this, this mix and match. Um, but for the most sensitive fields, yeah, you'd, you'd want to use um, either uh, what we call deterministic encryption or something called randomized encryption, which is the strongest kind of, you know, confidentiality protection. So if you're able to just query on, say, a customer ID or a user ID or something like that, we'll bring back the entire record back to your application and then it's fully decrypted. Uh, but it limits, uh, you know, some of the operations you can do on the on the query side. And and what about a performance? Does this degrade performance much? So that's a that's always a tricky question. And and like most things, it sort of depends. Uh, so the way we've it, it, the short version is, uh, in general, for for typical web application loads where it's sort of 85 percent read, 20 percent writes, um, the performance impacts usually you know less than five percent. <laughs> but the, but it gets a little tricky because <clears throat> if you're doing massive writes, um, if you're generating thousands of keys, um, you know, uh, per minute or per second, then then that does add some some overhead. The way we've engineered this too, there's um, there's a separate um, uh, service process that's running on the application server to help kind of parse queries, um, and so. It turns out that with certain, uh, like on the Linux side, with certain SE Linux uh, things turned on, you actually can can get quite a big performance boost by by managing local sort of internal network um, uh, 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 security profiles. Anyway, it, it, we're we're kind of working on some production guidance for for customers. But um, if you're familiar with something called the TPC benchmark, so it's you know this is kind of one of these classic. It's been around for 20 years in the relational world. Um, uh, Asia, one of our uh, uh, principal engineers, I think like a year ago, helped port the TPC sort of standard to a NoSQL uh, kind of format where we could try to, as, as close as we can with sort of the equivalent spirit of, uh, of what TPC was trying to do with the document model, give us some at least internal benchmarks that we could compare different workloads. 
Uh, so we're going through the process right now of we've done some preliminary testing using using the the, the document TPC uh, uh, workbench as well as the uh, the Yahoo Cloud what's it called the YCBS uh, benchmark. Uh, so you know we'll be coming out with some some very detailed performance uh, papers on that. But in general, the the hit on the server is is minimal because it's it's sort of you know oblivious to the data. Uh, you can still use take advantage of indexing and uh, you know caching and all those sorts of things with the type of encryption called deterministic. So there's there's very little hit or impact at all on the server. Uh, there can be more on the client side where the application lives. But if you're already at the headroom of like 96% CPU and network utilization on the application server, then you're definitely going to feel it more. If you've got lots of headroom, which is usually the case on on cloud instances, um, it should be really negligible. Mm -hmm. So who who's really excited about this feature? Uh, a couple of questions. I'm gonna I'm gonna load them up. So who's really excited about this feature from a from an industry perspective? Like who who are the big industries uh, really waiting for FLE? And uh, is it available on Atlas on the server? Is there additional cost associated with it? Yeah, no, there's no cost associated with it. So it's available on Atlas today. Um, it's available in the uh, you know in the on-premise as well as the uh, both the community and the EA. In the the enterprise and in the Atlas version, um, you do get something called uh, automatic transparent encryption. 